Hello, world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Uh, we're so happy to be back with you. Um, not live this time, unfortunately, because that was quite a bit of fun. But we are back in the studio. That's not that's not a right way to put it, is it? it I mean, none of us has an... Jack has kind of a studio. Yeah. It's more a corner in his office. Yeah. I have, I have a and home office. neither of the... Neither of the other two of us even have an office, so I guess he wins. No. Yeah. I'm just we're, we're I'm, also I'm, in the exact same spots we were last week. Yeah, I I am just in my I'm just in my living room in a corner of my living room next to the litter box, which is currently being used. So, um, uh, uh, thoughts up for me, uh, everybody. I asked you not <laughs> to shit during the recording, and here you are shitting in your cat's litter box. So, uh, we're back with you. Um, hopefully you all enjoyed the live episode last week, but we're back to our traditional format. Um, I'm Alex coming to you from St. Louis joined by my two usual co-hosts. The first of whom is Cody in Illinois. Cody, how are you? Good. Uh, pretty good so far. I am drinking a Schlafly pumpkin ale. My first of the season. Um, one of our liquor stores here in town just got their, uh, allotment for the uh, next couple of weeks. So, uh, Swung by there, grabbed uh, grabbed some pumpkin brews, drinking a uh, glass of pumpkin pie, basically, is what this tastes like. But, uh, yeah, other than that, pretty good. I'm very relieved. I uh, had some audio issues uh, at the very beginning when we first jumped on the Discord call. So, uh, happy that all panned out, and uh, all you wonderful people now have to uh, hear whatever dumb shit I'm going to say. It was, a, it was a stressful five minutes or so, yes. We're also joined by uh, Jack John. I was about to slam like five more of these pumpkin beers if that didn't work out. Yeah, if we are... had to move this to tomorrow night, I was going to just like beer bong all of the pumpkin brew I had. And those things are pretty pumpkin. strong too. So I can't think of a better October than just beer bonging pumpkin ales. <laughs> well, maybe tomorrow night because tomorrow night's going to be my uh, big horror movie night this week. So maybe I'll uh, I'll break out the old uh, the old hose and funnel. So we're also joined by Jack John in Indianapolis. Jack John, how are you? I'm doing good. I, I'm a little tired tonight. I've started a new tradition um, and a new way to hate myself. I've started going to the gym at 5.30 in the morning twice mm -hmm. a week, uh, which is it's nice and relaxing because I don't have to fuck with people anywhere in the gym because there's like me and like four other people in the entire building. Uh, but it's I've, I'm still debating on if it's self-care or self-harm, me doing it. So always a fine line. Just with you, like yeah. every, just like everyone else who goes to the gym at five thirty, it took him five minutes of us being in a public forum for him to uh, spell that out for everybody. Yeah. So um, congratulations, I guess we're all real <laughs> proud of you. I I at least waited. I've been doing it for about a month. I, I waited this long to make sure that I'm actually that asshole that does it. But uh, I'm glad to say that I am that asshole now. I work I work with a guy who goes to the gym at like three thirty in the morning, and it's like oh. what. What's your problem? <laughs> what do you do? What do you, what's do you go to bed, dude? Like, what does life look like for you? Yeah, like, I barely like doing it at 5.30. I can't imagine the amount of self-hate you have to do to get yourself out of bed and to a place at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. Although <clears throat> I will say he might have it nailed because being at a gym where there is no one else is the best gym experience there is. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can yeah. do whatever the fuck you want. No one, yeah, you're not worried about anything. Else. Just, just do you, and you know, however that pans out, it pans out. Yeah, back when I was going to the gym in my old apartment building, I would go down at um, usually like like ten ten thirty p.m. 
that was a pretty good time. It was it was all it was either just weirdos like me or or sometimes old people would be there, and and that's fine. Um, Shouldn't they be in bed by that point? I don't know. One would think, but there's some like sicko old people out there. We know this. They had dinner six hours ago. <laughs> you got no fuel. So, again, thanks to everyone who came out last week. It was a blast. Um, oh, my but God, it was so much fun. We, we really did. I, I mean, part of the, the, the fun for me, exactly as I was expecting, was, you know, there there wasn't anything too too different about how we did the show other than we got to interact with the audience. And that part... That part was really cool. I mean, just getting to getting to have other people jump in and riff on top of all the rest of it. Um, it was like there was super riffing going on. It, it was it was pretty great. Yeah. Um, We're doing a whole Marvel expanded universe of uh, of riffing. So hopefully, yeah, like Pookie used to call it, this is the Belch CU. Yeah, we're we're here to ask you about the Here's a Guy initiative. So hopefully we can be as entertaining this week. Um, we'll have three great tales of guys to come up. But first, I wanted to talk about a lot of times in these opening segments, um, Cody describes the weird things going on in his neck of the woods. But, you know, I live in St. Louis, as I mentioned, and um, we pretty much always got some weird shit going on in this neck of the woods. And uh, this week, even by our own standards, has been quite the doozy. It's like I, people get have a lot of ideas wrong about this place. Like it is a weird place to be just not for the reasons that people seem to think that they are. Like if you ask like, you know, <laughs> if you ask like a, a suburban or, or a rural person, they'll think like, well, people are just getting shot and murdered left and right. And that's not like we have a high murder rate, but consider that relative to population. Like, you know, you live here and you're probably never going to see that happen ever or have it happen to you. If you ask someone from like a big coastal city, they think, you know, that we're mainly like, you know, racist inbred hicks, which there are some, not going to lie, but, um, but mostly in the rest of the state, but no, like the weirdness, the weirdness, it, it, it comes about in ways that are hard to articulate. And, and one story that's been going around this week is, uh, I mean, just it, it's as unfortunately as St. Louis of a story as you're going to find. And as much as I love it here, I meant, I mean that in the pejorative way. Um, so in, in North city, Apparently something that was going on in one of the neighborhoods was um, some uh, uh, people who lived in the area had noticed like some some people squatting on an abandoned piece of property. Um, and right around the time they left, they noticed something odd and they started hearing rumors about someone had gotten killed and uh, might have gotten buried in the yard. So that's a cause for alarm. And um, the old Jimmy Hoffa. Yep. And uh, that's the kind of thing, you know, you think like, well. You call the cops about, they come out and they check, and uh, whatever happens happens. If only things the were cops, so, if only things are so the, simple. Yeah, the cops do their ten seconds of, well, I don't see the body, and well, I didn't bring a shovel, and I don't give a shit. So, well, um, yeah, Jack there's not, there's not a dead body sitting there <laughs> wearing a t-shirt that says "corpse" on it. So, Jack, amazingly, must not it, be anything wrong here. Amazingly, it didn't even get that far. They just didn't want to come out there, <laughs> and so people who lived in the neighborhood started like poking around the property. And, um, I will say like, um, a lot of this is coming from the, the St. Louis post dispatch article, but also a Twitter thread from someone who has a lot of friends in that neighborhood and was kind of given the inside scoop. Like they started poking around the property and they saw there was a brush pile and like 
the dirt had clearly been dug up underneath it very recently. <laughs> and so they oh, try no. calling the cops again. They're like, no, like, look, we're pretty sure there's a body in this yard. Can you please come out and dig the thing up? And we're like, the, the, the response was basically like, no, fuck you. You dig it up. We're not doing that. <laughs> so the police were less useful than your average beagle right. in this situation. Where um, there is a potential murder. The dispatcher on the other end is like, I don't want to see a dead body. No, fuck you. You do it. That sounds awful. Um, <laughs> sounds traumatizing. You guys should really call somebody about that, actually. This is literally Chief Wiggum in the Springfield Police Department at this point. Look, the law is entirely powerless to help you. So apparently a couple of their lackeys did get talked into to going out to the property. Because um, one woman just kept calling in and calling in, was pretty rightfully concerned about this. And like their response in, in classic like St. Louis cop fashion is they detained her and stuck her in the back of a cop car for a long time. And also they let her dog out and it just ran away. They did find it eventually, but, and, and also they didn't dig up the, they didn't dig up the, the, the yard. I mean, they, they, you know, they saw the spot, but they refused to dig. The cops okay. were like, look, so, if you want a body here, we'll leave a body here, but it's going to be yours. Or your dogs. That's, that's, that also happens <laughs> yeah. a lot. So that's a thing that law enforcement really, really should quit doing uh, among all the other things that law enforcement really should quit doing. Because I remember um, when, uh, there was this whole deal with a uh, prominent trans uh, Twitch streamer called Keffels who got uh, swatted. Basically, people called the SWAT team on her for no reason in the middle of the night. And from what I read, during this uh, whole encounter, the FBI agents kicked in the door and shot both of her pets before... Um, before they had any idea what was going on or who this even was they were dealing with. Oh, yeah, yeah. When it... I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't have any pets where I live, but if I did, if the FBI kicks in my door at 2 in the morning and shoots both of my pets, they're going to have a reason to be there. Oh, Maybe yeah. they didn't before, but, uh, yeah, somebody's going to be eating a dead cat. Like, I, I can't imagine a world where, like, like somebody comes in and like shoots my pets and I have to be like, okay, hey, like I understand you're sorry. Now fuck that. I'm I'm going out swinging. Yeah. They, yeah, and, and so they still didn't dig it up. And um so what what these poor people had to do was call their their alderman, which I unfortunately for the life of me, I just read this article and I already forgot this guy's name. I apologize. His first name was Brandon. I I can't remember his last name, but uh, I think Brandon Bully may have been his name, but they call the alderman and like alderman is a pretty important position in St. Louis. Like they do a lot of direct stuff with the neighborhood. And so the alderman is pretty concerned about this. Like this is a, you know, this I is a, is. this is a dead body yeah. <laughs> buried in my ward and the cops don't care. And so what he does is he uh, gets a security officer that he knows and also uh, asks the fire department to borrow their cadaver dog for a little bit. And they, they go out to this property, and the alderman himself just starts digging. And he and this security officer start digging, and they find, like, yep, dead body. <laughs> and so then the co the cops come out, but they say at oh. this point they're they're not investigating it as a criminal activity at this time. Cool. How the hell so, else do you wind up buried up there? So, for, the, for those of you who do not understand why 
in a lot of in a lot of communities why they don't trust to talk to the police and they don't trust to get the police involved it's shit like this because a lot of times they don't give a fuck and the only thing anybody got out of calling them there was one woman almost lost her dog and had to sit in the back of a cop car for a couple hours preposterous and also, yeah and also the alderman gets traumatized because they're like hey you go dig up this body like what the fuck yeah, alderman just had to see a corpse. by the way by the way, uh, Brandon Bosley was his Brandon name. Bosley. So, Alex, was, you were close. I was but, close. Uh, yeah. yeah, good on you, Brandon the, Bosley. Shout yeah, out. the the rare, unironic, let's go, Brandon. You know. Um, so that's what's going on there. Great stuff. And, like, that is a very St. Louis story, <laughs> the kind of shit that happens here. And you may wonder, why is it that, that a lot of people here are, are this way? Well, another story going on here that, that may explain some of it is, um, turns out, headline, this has been here since the 1940s. High levels of radioactive lead found at Jana Elementary School. So in North County, um, apparently back in like the 40s after World War II, the leftover radioactive material they just dumped in the creek because like... <laughs> of course they did. Yeah. And I they... Mean, what else do you have a creek? And everyone's, you know, everyone's move was like, you know, enough time passed. They kind of just moved on with their lives and decided not to think about it. Well, turns out they uh, they found traces. Um, uh, they've, they've found remaining traces of, of uh, toxic radiation near this elementary school. People are, uh, of course, not happy. Um, this is like inside the building. It says inside the Jana Elementary School building, specifically on the cafeteria fan in the boiler room in the school library. And the playground area soil, specifically the kindergarten garden play area. Boy, so that's a big design flaw, uh, making sure that the creek runs directly through the elementary school. <laughs> it's like a lazy river. We thought this whole Willy Wonka thing would be really <laughs> fun, but in the end, yeah. it uh, turned out horribly. You know, up until this year, uh, advertising fresh distilled creek water for the children it sounded like a good idea. So that's what's going on in my neck of the woods. Um, you know, I'll say I do love this city. I love living here. A lot of great people, you know, a lot of great culture, you know, food, beer, art, all kinds of great stuff. Lots of good free attractions. But um, we are deeply fucked up in a lot of ways, unfortunately, in this week. Yeah, uh, not uh, getting radiation yeah. poisoning, apparently not chief among those attractions <laughs> yeah. in St. Louis. And, That's and right. because of my outlook on the world, I'm sure the uh, outcome of both of those situations is going to be nothing changes and also nothing changes. Uh, strong, as cynical as it is, there is a strong track record on your side with that, Jack John. So maybe, maybe they'll just like take that dead body and throw it at the school and see if that'll soak up all the lead. <laughs> just stuff all the your all the lead and radioactive waste inside this dead body. So as much as we could go on and on about the, the the fun things happening in the Gateway City, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to talk about some guys. So let's get into it. Let's get back into the regular routine. Jack, could you help me out, please? Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. Fantastic. Um, Cody was uh, uh, acting as a conductor for you there a little bit. We lift each other up here on Here's a Guy. Why do you think that was so much better than it usually is? Yeah. He actually had somebody to keep him on tempo this time. There's a lot to remember during that uh, during that piece, and I, I often look to my conductor to help me guide uh, my own voice uh, through it. During that two-note till <laughs> two-syllable piece. 
It's two note, but somehow I make it four, and they're all off key. Well, Jack, you are correct, sir. Since you're all good and warmed up, um, how about you go first? Who's your guy this week? I would love to. Uh, I'm going back to the infinite well of pro wrestling guys uh, this week with my guy, Charles Wright. Charles was one of the more versatile guys in the pro wrestling world in the 1990s and early 2000s, and his range of gimmicks is what truly makes him worthy of discussion. With that said, he's also the product of his time, and his most well-known gimmick isn't exactly what I would call appropriate by today's standards. So we'll throw that quick caveat in there before we get into it. A lot of them from that time were not. In fact, most of them yeah. from that time were not, you could say. We, if you recall I, our, our big boss man discussion. Yes. I, I introduced Pookie to some like wrestlers in like the 90s and 2000s while like giving him some like D&D prep. And he, he texted me, and he just goes... Pro wrestling in the '90s was racist, and I went, "Yeah, which That's one are you right. talking about?" Yeah. <laughs> like, there, there was, was no very... one point. Not unlike uh, what we see today, there was a very big anti-political correctness movement among uh, wrestling executives and fans alike. Uh, yeah, and as we talked about before in our discussion of the Attitude Era, a lot of this was inspired by just like trash TV, Springer, and then the two big companies were kind of just competing with each other to see you know, who could who could do the most outlandish gimmicks. And we'll definitely get there tonight. Yeah. Uh, but back to our guy, uh, Charles. Charles was born in Las Vegas, Nevada in May of 1961. Shortly after his birth, his family would move to San Jose, where Charles would make a name for himself. Due to his incredible six-foot-plus size, he was a natural at basketball and dominated at the high school level. He wasn't very large. Now, or... Wait a second. Being six foot plus does not mean you will dominate at high school basketball. Because I didn't play high school basketball, but if I had, I wouldn't have dominated. And I am definitely six foot plus. I couldn't find the exact measurements of what he was in high school, but he's going to end up being six foot six. <clears throat> not bad. So, now that makes a little more sense. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I didn't want to put an exact measurement on it, but he's probably anywhere between like six three and six five right now. You know, another pro wrestler who was good at basketball? The Big Show. Played at Wichita That's State true. and uh, also for one year at SAU Edwardsville, local local product. One of the three yep. most famous alumni of that school, along with the guy from Wilco and award-winning lunatic LA Times writer Bill Plaschke. Oh, Jesus. Yep. Nightmare blunt rotation. Just an absolute <laughs> douche canoe of an alumni uh, meeting, yes. Big Show's a nice guy, but other than that, yes. Yeah. Uh, Charles wasn't uh, very large uh, pounds-wise, only being about 175 pounds at the time, uh, but he still played very physically, at least in his mindset. Good wasn't... God. Pounds-wise. 6'5", 175 pounds? You're a human toothpick. Yeah. But uh, it was with his size vertically that he powered his way to being Northern California Basketball Player of the Year during his time in high school. Right on. Charles attributed his physicality to his love for football. He'd always wanted to play football, but his parents wouldn't sign the permission slip for him to do a tryout, fearing the brutality of the sport. Yeah, not, if you're not a wrong. six foot six, one seventy five pound tight end, you're running crossing routes. You're gonna get your neck broken. Yeah. You're gonna put up about one hundred and fifty yards a game, but you're gonna get your ass yeah. kicked. Yeah, Peyton Manning's gonna throw you a hospital ball over the middle, and you're just gonna snap in half. Yeah. So what Charles would do with that love of football is he would take the mindset of hitting fast and hard and transition that to the basketball court. On top of this, Charles was also a track star. It was in track and field that Charles would find his way to be a high jumper. In his own words, Charles stated that on a two-foot jump, he could jump over 40 inches. So an That's insane... a pretty good vertical. 
Yeah. That's really good for a six foot six guy. Now, the college that we all went to had uh, an NCAA dunk contest champion, and his vertical was measured at about 50 inches. He was also six foot. Yeah. So imagine a six foot six guy (laughs) jumping 40 inches. Oh, man. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's Miles Plumley used to do that. And that alone got him into the NBA despite (laughs) having no other discernible basketball skills. Yes. Nate Robinson Uh, as well. uh, This would get him some traction going to college, but his grades weren't the best at the time. This would lead him to De Anza Junior College in California. There he would work on not only his grades, but his size as well. Here, Charles would truly come into his own, at least size-wise. He started hanging out with football players, lifting and training and doing drills with them. Charles, who was already a near-freak athlete, put on one of the biggest glow-ups, at least in terms of a skinny guy getting big. His height was continuing to bloom as well, and the now over six foot five uh, college athlete who started college at 190 pounds grew to 240 pounds within months of just pure deadlifting strong. This so he's Zion Williamson at this point. Yeah, yeah. His story up until this point sounds incredibly similar to Kermit Washington, and so if is all of this better than having like is is all this that winds up happening with Charles Wright better than having an NBA career, but uh, it falling apart because he punch a guy so hard it nearly kills him. We'll let the listeners decide. Yeah. Uh, during this time, his bench also went by his own uh, word, 135 to 300 for his bench press. Oh, I think that's yeah, twice as much. All, yeah. yeah. First of all, if you are a six foot plus college athlete and you are only benching 135, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Something well, is wrong there. It it seemed like at least in high school he wasn't lifting and he learned how to power lift while in college. So I'm sure like I could do that. I could do that when I was 13. Yeah. Like, surely this guy Cody. probably could have done better. Yeah. Well, in certain sports, yeah. maybe. Yeah. He also said that like of all his power lifts combined, he was like getting near like he said near two thousand, like at his peak of powerlifting everything. Like just moving a shit ton of weight. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh this would cause his interest in basketball to diminish and his love for football to grow even further, despite having never played it down. Local colleges, uh, local coaches at the college would also take notice of this, and Charles was flown out to visit the University of Nevada at Reno and their football staff. Since he had no formal football training, the coaches gave Charles a basketball and simply asked to see what the athlete could do. After a few 360 dunks and showing of his explosive speed, Charles Wright was given a full ride to the school to play football, transitioning him to right tackle, again, despite never having played a down of organized football. It's quite the leap of So faith. they made him an offensive lineman. That is a gamble. You, you see this that very... is more physicality than you will ever see on a basketball court. You see this very rarely. Like um, Jordan Mailata, who plays for the Eagles, was kind of a similar story. There's a guy who played Daniel uh, Faalele. I can't remember who drafted him last year, but was similar story. He was like just this massive rugby player from Australia <laughs> that uh, the University of Minnesota gave a full ride to be an offensive tackle because he was just an absolute physical freak. So... Uh, a lot of times in college uh, with college basketball players who are especially taller and wind up playing football, they wind up playing tight end. Like Antonio Gates yeah, is a classic yeah. example. Tony Gonzalez 
they don't make these guys offensive tackles. And let me tell you right now, either Antonio Gates or Tony Gonzalez would have gotten absolutely mauled playing right yeah. tackle. In the NFL. Right. They weren't yeah. big enough, but there is something to be said for, for tackle, especially like with a basketball background, if you have the size and the strength and you're flexible enough, your footwork's going to be really good. So there is something yeah, to footwork. That. A lot of that, you know, drop step stuff you do on the uh, interior to try and score right under the bucket. If you're not going to just try and jump out of the gym and dunk it every time. Similar stuff to what you're doing, pass blocking especially. Which leads us to the next point. He was great at pass blocking due to his natural ability and footwork, but wasn't always the best at run blocking and could not really drive defenders back. Yeah. Run blocking is all about muscle. Yeah, yeah, I can tell you that for sure. Run blocking is just, I'm tougher than you, and I'm going to push you away. Yeah. Sadly, his parents' fears would be not too unfounded, as Charles would blow out his knee very early and end his p- football playing career. Bummer. So just as his football career starts, he blows out his knee and is just done. This is where he would find one of his lasting hobbies. Going to strip clubs. Okay. He's yeah. in Vegas after all. <laughs> That's true. Fair enough. Well, actually, to be fair, I think you said he's in Reno, which well, doesn't, yeah. which he, there's still a lot of strip clubs, but they are yeah. less, a not lot, too far from Vegas. A lot Vegas. less classier joints than, than yeah. what they find yeah, in Re- Vegas. Reno is diet Vegas. It's Vegas' runoff, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And think about what that says. With all the downtime he had, uh, with no playing in his near future, Charles would often spend times in various nightclubs and bars. At the same time, he would also start getting into some personal issues while still in college. On one particular night, Charles and his friends were drinking and playing cards. Charles had received a call from someone who demanded that they turn down the music and be quiet, since it was the middle of the week in a school night. That person called multiple times, and after the third call, Charles threatened to call her back, saying, if you call us again, I'm coming downstairs and kicking your ass. Charles, who was on the third floor, had assumed that the person immediately below him on the second floor was the one making the complaints. The phone in his dorm room would ring a fourth time, and Charles had enough. He went downstairs, kicked the door down, and threw the man in the room out of the second-story balcony, luckily somehow not seriously injuring him. Okay. This was bad for two reasons. (laughs) Just the two, though. Number one... Charles just assaulted a guy. Yeah. Yeah. And number two, Charles just assaulted the wrong guy. Aww. See, Tom and I had a similar situation with one of the folks upstairs our senior year when we would throw a full-on house party in a tiny apartment every weekend. But we never threw him off the balcony. You absolutely should there. Well, yeah, you, yeah, did, no, you didn't have a balcony. I, 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 look, I, I look back on that with regret, but uh, yeah. <laughs> did Cody didn't that. have a balcony, but that guy did. Yeah, uh, he really did. I could have yeah. thrown him off the balcony. Yeah, it, it was like a one and a half, like not even, it's a half story jump. He could have, he could have lived and been fine. Uh, you know what? <laughs> At, by the end of that, by the end of that semester, I didn't care. <laughs> uh, it turns out though. One of Charles's friends was playing a prank on him and making fake calls to complain about the noise. Charles didn't know this, though, and accidentally took out all of that on an unsuspecting dude who was just minding his business in his door. See, now I'm getting visions of you and or Alex our senior year, and 
I think both of you would have known better than to do that. I would hope. I would at least I, ask we'll, first. We'll talk about this story one day when when we get like a first really good snowfall. Uh, but I almost got my ass kicked in college, so it's not yep. unprecedented that that, that would have happened to me. I, I witnessed that one. Yeah, we'll talk about that eventually. Yep. Uh, not everyone involved would find this as funny though, and Charles would be kicked out of the dorms for this. Yeah, you threw a guy off the balcony. I'm pretty sure that's in the handbook. It was around this time that Charles also started bartending and managing a bar called the Crazy Horse, while also joining a motorcycle club. Was it was it the <laughs> White just Rabbits? Make all the wrong decisions. Why don't we? Yeah. Let's just do all the things that yeah. will end badly. Yeah. Let's start shooting heroin while I'm at it. <laughs> Charles Wright was the embodiment. Tell me to table that thought. I'm going to throw you off a balcony. <laughs> Charles Wright was the embodiment of "Do not fuck with me." Uh, but it was while at this bar that Charles' life would truly change. It just so happened that nearby the bar, down the road at a lot, a movie was being filmed. Over the Top, a 1987 film starring Sylvester Stallone and several wrestlers around the concept of arm wrestling. Yeah. Yeah! It's a great movie. It's some, terrible. Yeah, some but pure, it's so fucking fun. just a pure 80s cheese fest. It's, it's oh, fantastic. Absolutely. By the way, with a fantastic Sammy Hagar-led theme song. Oh, yeah, of course. Winner, winner Takes It All is, like, top greatest 80s cheesy oh, yeah. hard rock theme songs. The wrestlers who were working the movie would go to the bar afterwards and unwind and notice the massive man behind the bar. They told Charles that he should start wrestling. Charles, who was not a fan of wrestling, immediately shunned the idea as that fake shit. His mind would truly change pretty quickly, though, when one of the men in the group informed Charles that Bam Bam Bigelow, a famous wrestler during that time, had raked in $1 million the previous year. Well, and on top of that, if you saw Bam Bam Bigelow, there's nothing there's nothing fake about him yes. being a tough guy. He was fucking Bam huge, Bam... and he had flames tattooed on his head. Yes. Yeah. One this... of the more iconic would kill dudes. you, yeah. Yeah. Charles would take a trip to a training facility called the Monster Factory, where Bam Bam had trained, and was signed to a training deal just on his look alone. Charles didn't really care about training, though, not being a huge fan of the business at the time. Instead of, tra <laughs> instead of training, he would just smoke weed and hang out with people in the back instead of <laughs> training in the ring. Which, at this point, I was also... this for my job? <laughs> it was also said, like, uh, around this time... Especially like he didn't he didn't smoke weed until he turned twenty seven. He he said that like he was like almost like borderline abusing painkillers and like pills, and he he didn't want to try weed. And then he tried weed for the first time at twenty seven, and he was just like, you know what, my my body doesn't hurt anymore. I feel really good. Like I'm. He, it also said he also said that like weed really mellowed him out in a very positive way. And he stopped being as much of an angry dude. It's like, wait, here's so a the here's one a good decision he's ever made. <laughs> yeah. He started instead of training. Uh, um, I'm sorry, luck would be on his side though, uh, as a visitor to the training school would see a potential in him, despite his inexperience and complete lack of training. But none other than Jerry the King fucking Lawler, the Mid South Wrestling Champion at the time, was visiting the wrestling school and proposed a match with Charles seeing that a man of his size could truly draw money on his look, uh, which at this point is just a recurring theme for Charles's life. People see him and go, you've got a potential somehow in a way that you don't understand yet. I wish that would happen to me. 
Wrestling under the name The Soul Taker, based on one of the tattoos on his arm, Charles would wrestle Jerry Lawler, and Jerry would actually lead the entire match down in Mid-South Wrestling, a huge territory get for any like up-and-coming wrestler, and even let Charles win the match, uh, which is incredible considering that this would uh, basically make him the USWA United World Heavyweight Champion in his first match, something that's incredibly unprecedented and does not happen. Obviously a massive ratings grab. Um, it wasn't really like televised. It was more of just like a, a gate to get money, especially from the right. Locals. But I mean, yeah. But I mean, creating buzz, yeah. yeah. Right, and it was especially like in the territory era, your champion would put over like a potential up and comer or like somebody that like looks impressive, only to get the title back really shortly after. Which is what Jerry would do. Jerry Lawler got the title back two weeks afterwards. But really kind of like introducing uh, Charles Wright to the wrestling world very, very quickly. It was around this time that Charles would also make one of his first true friends in the wrestling business. A redhead guy by the name of Mark Calloway, who you would better know as The Undertaker. Yeah, pretty important figure. Yeah. This friendship would pay off as in 1991, The Undertaker would bring in Charles for his first big attempt at wrestling, at least on the main world stage. At this point, Charles had wrestled for some smaller promotions and even in Japan for a small spell. But this time, the WWF would be his biggest get. So after some behind-the-scenes training and development, what gimmick or character would Charles Wright get for his first big introduction to the world in 1992? None other than the voodoo practitioner and pretty much as spooky as I may get this Halloween season, Papa Shango. Yeah. This is the... this, This is... Love me some voodoo. Like... All of these are going to be be pretty culturally insensitive in one way or another. This is this was probably the most of them. Yeah. yeah. Inspi- inspired by the James Bond movie Live and Let Die, he would adorn face paint, a necklace of bones, and a priest staff. So, <sighs> for those unfamiliar with this movie, it was James the James Bond franchise's um, attempt to cash in on the black exploitation craze with movies like Coffee and Foxy Brown. Um, and it, it really was a very good James Bond movie. Also, the theme song is the best James Bond theme song there has ever been. Paul McCartney and Win- Wings absolutely kill it. But there were a lot of, there were a lot of uh, folks from uh, Haiti, Hispaniola, and the surrounding area that were like, hey... Yeah, we don't all do this shit. Come yeah. on, guys! <laughs> like, if, if Albert you Broccoli, make... can you back off a little bit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, this whole the, the the kind of craze culturally about you know voodoo stuff around that time is, is the sort of thing that if it is even possible to do it right, and I don't know that that it is, it would have to be handled with tremendous uh, uh, tact and sensitivity. Yeah, not something that the pro wrestling world is known for oh, yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it it was as bad as you you would imagine it is. Yes, Vince McMahon had wanted to bring in Charles as a bad guy, but due to his literal babyface, he chose to cover the man in face paint to make him look meaner. Papa Shango would come to the ring, speaking rituals and blowing smoke. The incredibly racist and offensive gimmick had one thing going for it though, is that it scared the shit out of children. One thing good. Yeah. Um, (laughs) No way that'll. No way that'll blow up into later implications. Uh, one thing that Papa Shango's spells would do is cause people intense pain and even make them vomit. 
just from the incredibly racist, absolutely nonsense spells that Papa Shango would spew. I'm just oh. imagining some wrestler getting in there with Papa Shango. He drops a spell and they vomit. <laughs> but it wasn't in the script. It was just because the whole thing is so racist. That was their, <laughs> that was their default response. Well, children found the gimmick to be enticing, most adults loathed it. Dave Meltzer, a very respected wrestling journalist and one we've mentioned before for previous wrestling guys, would publish the 1992 year-end awards in which Papa Shango was voted the worst gimmick and most embarrassing wrestler of the year. <laughs> and, 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 and what was that, 1992, you said? 92. That, is, is, that is saying something. Yeah, that's saying a lot. That was not yeah. a good time most for the business. Most embarrassing wrestler. Yes, as Holy voted by fuck, the fans. I wish there was still a national award for this. Um, I not um, Dave Meltzer does it every year and still does. I'm not sure if most embarrassing wrestlers in there, but I know worst gimmick is. That was around the same time as Nails too, who we talked about yeah. previously. Right, like in, in the early '90s, especially WWF was the every wrestler has a day job era, and they were all fucking terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nails, terrible wrestler, great band. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wrestling legend Bret Hart would also go on record saying that Papa Shango was the second worst creative concept ever, second only to the gobbledygooker, a literal giant turkey. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about the gobbledygooker before, and we might have to get into that in uh, greater detail <laughs> later on. Yeah. But yeah, it is one of the dumbest goddamn things I've ever seen. But it, the thing about the gobbledygooker, as far as I know, and you guys are bigger into wrestling than me, is that it's supposed to be used only in situations that are supposed to be silly. It it was a giant, like, build-up and payoff to a gag. But even yeah. the build-up I mean, and it, the payoff was fucking stupid. The gobbledygooker mostly comes out for, like, Royal Rumble, doesn't he? Um, the gobbledygooker isn't really real in the sense that there's not really anything other than the one reveal at Survivor Series in gotcha. 97, I think. But, like, still, dumb idea. <laughs> um, Papa Shango's worst moment overall, though, would happen on the biggest stage of them all, WrestleMania 8. At the height of the main event, Hulk Hogan versus Psycho Sid, Papa Shango is supposed to run out and attack Hulk Hogan. Due to a timing miscue, though, Shango ends up missing the entire finish of the match. Yeah. <laughs> What was supposed to happen? Hope nothing is... else happens, guys. What was I'm supposed... just gonna stand here and catch my breath for a little bit before I pin him. Hope was... no big fat voodoo motherfucker comes out here and fucks up my match. What was supposed to happen is Hulk Hogan was supposed to hit his famous finisher combo, the big boot and the atomic leg drop, and enter in every situation something nobody ever kicks out of, and have the pin be broken up by an interfering Shango. The problem is, is either due to not paying attention or just a complete ineptitude, nobody in the back gives Shango his cue, and almost a full minute after Sid has to kick out of the finish and like run into an improvised finish, does Shango slowly and awkwardly come jogging out on camera to everyone's confusion? Yeah, it, it, it a moment of pure... Just a complete fuck up that accidentally created some wrestling history. Because as you said, nobody kicked out of the leg drop. It didn't happen. But yeah. Psycho Sid had to. Yeah. He had to. 
So Shango comes out like, "Hey, uh, he, cool match, he, right, guys?" Yeah. He literally when it, when he when he comes down to I'm Ray, just gonna he, sit he, here with you guys and watch the rest of this. He really is just moving like very sheepishly, like he knows yeah. how bad this is. You can tell. Yeah. Sorry, I had the uh, taco platter before this, <laughs> and I was otherwise engaged. Yeah. To, to this day, though, Charles Wright just insists that they just forgot to give him the cue and that it's not his fault at all. But he very clearly has the body energy of fuck, 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 fuck while he's jogging out there. <laughs> well, I would, too, yeah. even if somebody else had fucked that up. Yeah. I would still be because, well, the company I work with, I know, first of all, that would blow back directly on me. But also, second of all, you know, I'd just be like, um, what can we make out of this? I don't care whose fault this is. I just want this to look decent. Charles would not last long as Papa Shango due to him hating the gimmick as well. And Charles would leave the WWF in 1993, returning to bartending. Well, I'll add also on that, like, although that's one of the all time big wrestling fuck ups. It kind of played up because, like, what happened right after that is the Ultimate Warrior returned and the place right. he absolutely blew the lid off the place and everyone yeah. kind of just forgot about it. Right. It but, was one of those things where his interference was supposed to cause the DQ. They had to improvise and create a DQ a different way, but they still needed Papa Shango out there to make the odds uneven for the eventual Ultimate Warrior save. But just, like, in the moment, no one knows what the fuck's going it, on. It made one of the great chaotic wrestlemania moments of all time yeah. yes the main event of wrestlemania just a complete shit show charles would return after a brief hiatus to the wwf in 1995 under a new gimmick uh especially during this time just like changing your entire wrestling persona was a lot easier and charles wright would become basically a master at it he would come back so as Kama, on... the supreme fighting machine a no-nonsense ultimate fire heavily inspired by the rising of ultimate fighting so, based on just the one WrestleMania I watched with Alex, I get the sense that there were a lot of parallels with Baron Corbin here. Because he also has a new gimmick, like, every two weeks, doesn't he? In, in, in a way, parallels. So, in a way, yeah. So, Baron Corbin, especially, like, to use that one, still is Baron Corbin, but he's in a different, like, mood he's still always been named baron corbin gotcha this so he's, iteration so of he's happy back, corbin right now he was down in his luck before but this guy yeah. is just completely new name yes. new face new yeah. everything in fact yeah, i didn't watch but i i think just in the last couple of weeks corbin might have come back as something else again <laughs> yeah he's i think he's got a new like apprenticeship under somebody else and he's like a, like a slightly different Baron Corbin, but he oh, still like has the lineage there. Kama the Supreme Fighting Machine has no ties to Papa Shango. Um, this character wouldn't really do too much just because he was just, hey, I'm a guy who beats people up, and he would find uh, his role transitioned to a new stable that was uh, being formed, the Nation of Domination, a militant group based on the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Which... We've talked about Little, it. Wrestling, eh, wrestling, lacks, about wrestling lacks subtlety in amazing ways. The most subtle thing in wrestling is getting hit in the face with a chair. Like it. This was one of those that could have theoretically worked in the right hands, but it's wrestling. Yeah. It's not in the right hands. It, and of course, they're heels. So. Yeah. It, it, I, I can't remember where it was. 
but it's hypothesized like if this gimmick was done now they would be massive baby faces but because it was the 90s they were heels but the group was carried based on the strength of its members yeah uh, of of course uh charles wright going by the slightly altered name uh kama mustafa he was alongside farouk who is a legend in pro wrestling and somebody yes. who i hope to cover one day Dilo brown and a very young, very inexperienced Rocky Maivia, a.k.a. The Rock. Yep. It was while in this group that Charles Wright had his best idea, uh, as far as wrestling is concerned, during being removed from the group and fired, or at least having his contract not re, uh, re-upped, <clears throat> Charles came up with a new character while he was getting kind of phased out of the nation. He tested it out on a house show loop, and it struck gold, and during the next TV taping, he asked The Rock to refer to him by his new name going forward, The Godfather. Yeah, which also <laughs> okay. also some questionable racial undertones in this, but it was at least his idea. So yes, anti-Italian discrimination. Um, so we're gonna get to what The Godfather was, but I do want to make a note. In an interview, The Godfather said that the idea, or Charles Wright said, the idea for The Godfather came from his wife. And I want you to put that in the back of your mind while I'm telling you what the Godfather is. <laughs> I gotcha. Oh, boy. I this don't was, like a preemptive table, that thought. This was Charles Wright turned up to 11, loudly smoking weed, wearing a gold chain that said Godfather, and wearing bright suits. The Godfather would come down to the ring with a collection of women, uh, very, very nicely referred to as his hose. Yeah. His theme well, song would repeat the... You're just mixing your your racial stereotypes here. His theme song would repeat the lines, pimpin' ain't easy, and he even added a new, wildly popular set of catchphrases, uh, including, it's once again time for everybody to come on aboard the hoe train, and I want you to roll a fatty for this pimp daddy, light that blunt up, and say pimpin' ain't easy. Right. Yeah, see, you know what? I'm down with that. Yeah, there are really no mafia allusions in any of this other than arguably the name. And one yes. and and hopefully I'm not stepping on anything here, Jack, but but kind of an interesting thing about this is that um in the episode of, of Dark Side of the Ring he appeared on, he talked about in his in his bartending time how like his least favorite people were pimps, and he would just like beat the shit out of pimps that would come into yeah. his bars. So it, it he's borrowing from real life and and playing basically characters you know, caricatures of, of, of people that he, he hated. Yeah. So, quick question. More offensive pimp stereotype. This one or Trevor Moore from season one of Whitest Kids where uh, <laughs> the pimp takes his uh, his lady into the emergency room? <laughs> they're, they're not as far apart as you would think. In fact, the, yeah. tra- the, fact that the outfits are, are very, very similar. Yes. All she would eat is a pack of old Horios. <laughs> the um, voice he does kills me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just... it's, it's so over the top and I love it so much. Uh, I will say, uh, it, during a couple of interviews I listened to, what was really interesting about this is because, um, basically during this time, Charles Wright is just still going to strip clubs actively with The Undertaker <laughs> on, like, their off nights or, like, nights before when they get into big cities. What they would do is they would go to strip clubs and basically just, like, go to the manager and be like, hey, do you have some girls that want to be on TV tonight? We need about five to ten of them. <laughs> and they would just, like, pay strippers or actresses uh, some like future wrestlers like Lita was one of the hoes in the hoe train. Like they would just like <laughs> honestly like provide like paychecks to strippers, which was pretty progressive. I'd yeah. like to think to try to save this. For 
for our second Sopranos reference, nay, our second Silvio Dante reference, <laughs> I just imagine fucking Miami Steve Van Zant going, "Hey strippers!" <laughs> when you said that, like just turning to the, just turning to the girls, "Hey strippers, yeah. come here." Uh, during his set of catchphrases, though, that I had mentioned, entire crowds of children and adults alike would shout back the words in unison so loudly it's impressive like uh one one of the like ones that i like rewatch just to refresh myself of like his intro catchphrase is the godfather having a promo duel with kurt angle which is an all-time classic moment but like it cuts to the crowd and everyone is like screaming proudly like his back like seeing a child screaming roll a fatty is just like peak like early 2000s late 90s it's it's so great and what was more impressive is he was over as hell um and one inventive use of his gimmick at the time is to get out of like wrestling people he would just offer the services of his hose to get out of the match 90s wrestling 90s wrestling baby you can't do that anymore that is an interesting little deus ex machina yeah uh, the Times would catch up with this gimmick, though, and they would catch up fast, as in mid-2000, he would be forced to hang up the pimp cane. The Parents Television Council was hot on the WWE to change a lot of their more risque entertainment, the weed-smoking pimp the Godfather at the forefront of that. A way to appease this... And then he became an extra on Chappelle's show during the Player Haters Ball. A way to appease this while also taking a jab at the group, the WWE created the mocking stable Right to Censor. Yep. Uh, no nonsense, or a uh, no nonsense anti-fun group. The Godfather would lose a match to the group and be forced to join them. The once fun-loving pimp then forced into a white dress shirt and black tie, adorning his next gimmick, the Good Father. Yeah. Well, that. Oh, that's kind of Jesus. one of those where where clearly they came up with there the are... name before they thought about yeah. any of the rest of it. Yeah, it, it it's those not what us... you think, but it is like one of those like you could have workshopped this like one more day. Those of us who enjoy comic books, we think some of those character twists are stupid. <laughs> Watch wrestling for a little while. Oh, just yeah. just give it a shot. <laughs> It'll make you appreciate what uh, what yeah. DC or Marvel gives you a little bit more. Right to censor was also um, riffing on the the kind of kind of he's he's been a little bit lost to the sands of time but the uh um pro censorship um hard right wing LDS figure L Brent Bozell um who we may talk about on the show at some point cuz he's really something yeah, else Yeah him him and Tipper Gore there were a lot of uh, allusions to Uh this would be he's the probably, last I think, I think it was Catholic I got him confused with someone else So apologies to the LDS community for <laughs> for saying that that Brent Bozell is one of you to all of our Mormon listeners, what are you doing? Shouldn't you not be doing this? This would be the last major change in Charles Wright's career, briefly going back to the much-toned-down Godfather before ultimately retiring from wrestling. Uh, all in all, during his wrestling career, uh, the Godfather wouldn't... Uh, Charles Wright, in total, wouldn't gather too many wrestling titles. He was a one-time Intercontinental Champion, one-time Tag Team Champion. But his gimmicks and the way he committed himself fully to them, whether good or bad or i don't really know how to say if it's good or bad in the year 2022 he committed fully to it and was over as fuck especially in the 90s and 2000s leading to him being inducted in the wwe hall of fame in 2016 
after wrestling, the Godfather would also make a living doing what the Godfather probably would have done best. He managed a strip club in Las Vegas before uh, the company was sold in 2019 and now lends his likeness to a bunch of different marijuana dispensaries, even having his own strain of weed named after him and other pre-roll and related marijuana paraphernalia. Yeah, like, that's what Mike Tyson's doing these days. Yeah. It, honestly, like, Good. it is the smartest fucking marketing, like, thing that he could have transitioned to with minimal effort. I know he puts a shit ton of effort into it, but, like, it was just, like, laid out in front of you, like, Godfather basically said, like, since he turned 27, he's pretty much smoked weed every day of his life. He's now 61 and still holds that up. <clears throat> and uh, all I'll, right. I'll submit he um he was one of the participants in the Brawl for All, which I think we mentioned yes. on this show before. Yeah, yeah and, uh, it, great, great Dark Side of the Ring episode. Just go watch it. Maybe the yeah. worst idea in wrestling history, some have called it. Yeah. It honestly, like, there's there's a ton, a ton more of Charles Wright that I didn't cover. I didn't want to touch too much on his wrestling because honestly, his wrestling isn't what makes him stand out. There's also a ton of road stories uh, between like him, Ron Simmons, uh, John Bradshaw Layfield, like uh, Teddy Long. A, a million of those stories. Go just like listen to a Charles Wright interview. They're honestly just a ton of entertainment. Uh, but this all leads me to my big question: uh, Charles Wright had a ton of different gimmicks. Uh, like we said, some good, some bad. Um, which of those is your favorite? I'm going to throw mine to the good father just because it is just like a complete 180 of what he was beforehand. But it honestly, if you, you could make a, with the exception of, I think comma, the fighting machine, I think you could make an argument for any of those being your favorite. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the devil on your shoulder and I'm going to go with the godfather because the, um, mostly just because it reminded me of that whitest kid sketch and that is one of the funniest things i've ever seen so uh yeah i'm gonna go with the godfather for reasons good or bad i'm also gonna say the godfather having seen you know enough of all of these gimmicks because that one you could really tell he was feeling it more than any of the other gimmicks i mean that was his magnum opus that was him really in his element i mean he just leaned so hard into that character and and part of it was he clearly had so much fun doing it, um, right. which that that kind of opened up a new. Because like he really, he clearly didn't have a lot of fun being Papa Shango. I mean, yeah. Kama, you know, could kind of take or leave, but Godfather was his own creation, and, and um, you know, he he kind of poured his soul and a lot of fun into that. All right, Jack John. Well, thank you for that very good opening topic, um, and that brings us to me, and we're back to Mayhem Month this week for me. Um, my guy is, uh, another person I've wanted to discuss for a long time. I'm talking about Gunnar Hansen and more broadly, one of my favorite horror movies, the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can't see me throwing up rock horns, but that's what I'm doing. As discussed a couple weeks ago, Mayhem Month is, is about real life horrors and where Texas Chainsaw Massacre fits in is that. Part of what makes it one of the scariest movies ever is that a lot of the horror was very real to the people involved, but much more on that later. Yeah, here's the thing about Texas Chainsaw that people don't realize when they stack it up to the other big slasher franchises like Halloween or Friday the 13th. Texas Chainsaw had about 150th the budget. Yeah. (laughs) So this is small, independent production, and they had to do whatever they could to get these reactions out of people. And some of the links they went to are 
Well, Alex, I'll uh, I'll let you explain. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So Gunnar Hansen <clears throat> was born in 1947 in lovely Reykjavik, Iceland, and I'm wearing my Ooh. my Iceland shirt to commemorate that. I think our first Icelandic Hell guy yeah. on the show. Yeah, I was going to ask, that. is that our first Iceland? Fuck yeah. Uh, his family moved to the state of Maine when he was six, which I think makes him our first Maine guy as well. I mean, we've referenced Stephen King a bunch of times, but I think he's our first Maine guy. He then, yep. he then I think uh, he and Stephen King are the only <clears throat> two Maine guys. He then uh, moves to a state that we have covered quite extensively. When he was 11, his family moves to Austin, Texas. That is uh, culture whiplash <clears throat> going from Iceland to Maine to Texas. Like, it, it, at least it's like getting into it gradually because yeah. Iceland's like Nordic, <clears throat> so it's chilly, not like super cold, yeah. but also Iceland's super chill. Then to Maine, where it's similar weather but slightly less chill. Yeah, and then Texas, where a little bit warmer fucking batshit crazy i mean at least right. you had that intermediate step yeah i was gonna say kind of the common thread there between reykjavik iceland maine and austin texas specifically his family did seem to highly value quirk that is something you could find yeah. in all three of those places <laughs> austin texas the yeah. portland of the south yeah, yeah. where uh, all the I weirdos in texas go to hang out i often say keep maine weird and i'm glad that we're uh, we're keeping that up so two main things about Gunner. One, he's a very smart guy. Um, he worked on early computers while he was in high school. He was an enthusiast of poetry and theater. Two, he was a huge dude. He was six foot four, three hundred pounds, size fourteen feet. He Jesus. played football in he high school, that, and his the... and his side gig was also as a bar bouncer, much like Charles Wright. Yeah, he he had the Viking build that yeah. a lot of Icelanders and Nordic fellows tend yes. to have. I don't know who Cody's guy is, but I hope this ends up being pound for pound one of the bigger episodes we've done. Oh, table that thought. And that's a drink. So after high yeah, school... for those of you who are still doing the <laughs> stupid fucking drinking. After high school, Gunner goes to the University of Texas. He earns degrees in math and English. He then stays there for grad school for English and for Scandinavian studies, which seems Ooh. like an interesting uh, uh, grad school program. Dinga dinga Durgan. Yeah, a lot of sledding and canned fish. So my perception of Gunnar Hansen so far is like, if you took our friend Pookie and just like took a big bicycle, <laughs> took a big bicycle pump and inflate him up bigger, you would basically get Gunnar Hansen, like a big, like a big Nordic uh, Viking-looking guy who is also like like very smart and sensitive. If you were to genetically cross Pookie with Larry the Lobster, Gunnar Hansen is what you would have. Oh, God. <laughs> so Gunnar's at grad school at the University of Texas in the early 70s. Someone else who happened to be at the University of Texas at that time, a native Texan with ambitions as a film director named Willard Toby Hooper. Fuck yeah. Mentioned him, uh, mentioned Sorry. him, mentioned him back when Love I discussed, Hooper. mentioned I, when, back when I discussed Crazy Crab. <laughs> Toby was directing and shooting student films and documentaries, all while working on a script for his first major film. The script was built around the scenery of Central Texas. It touched on the themes of isolation, death, and the real horrors of modern life. A script that would go on to become Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. No, just kidding. It, the, te the, Texas <laughs> Chains yeah. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Only marginally more cool. Yeah. So there's a lot to say about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
I, I stand by, not only is it one of the great horror movies ever, it's one of the great indie movies of any genre, period. Absolutely. <clears throat> 100%. I mean, the, the, the emotions they are able to wring out of people on the budget that you will probably mm-hmm. later find out they had is mm-hmm. pretty incredible. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, say what you will about Tobe Hooper and his uh, his methods, but I mean, he he knew what he was doing and he did it well. So there's a lot to say about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of the longstanding myths about the movie is that it's based on real events. In fairness, that is how Hooper presented it. Um, that was something utilized a lot more by early horror films. I mean, an example even earlier than this, I believe it was earlier than this, was a Cannibal Holocaust, which yes. people thought was so real and was so shocking. 1973, I think? Yeah, 74 yeah. was... Sorry. 73 or 74 was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so around the same time, but, like, Cannibal Holocaust was so shocking and so visceral, the creators literally got taken to court over it and had to bring in the <laughs> actors, like, no, see, these people are still alive. It was just a movie. Um, yeah, the actress they were accusing the filmmakers of murdering, they had to put yeah. her on the stand to be like see a live person <laughs> they, they did murder a bunch of sea turtles unfortunately but anyway um so that really caught on with viewers of the texas chainsaw massacre for the very real semen qualities of the movie which we're going to talk about a lot um chainsaw massacre did draw influence from a few things in the real world one was ed gein the surely you know i, I can't imagine you're not familiar with ed gein but the 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 big fucking simpleton from wisconsin who also killed people and robbed graves captivated the american public since inspired not only helped inspire um you know the main villain in texas chainsaw massacre also helped inspire psycho and silence of the lamb so a very important pop culture figure yes yeah ed gein um for those of you who are true crime fans or like serial killer fans especially it's very strange there are exactly two people that they throw in that stable of uh, big serial killers that I feel sorry for, and both of them are from Wisconsin. One of them is Eddie Yee. Yeah. Uh, another influence that Tobe Hooper drew was um, Elmer Wayne Henley, a slightly lesser known serial killer from Houston, really more accurately described as a serial killer's recruiter. He was the one who lured Dean Coral's victims for him um, before Henley, who was still a teenager at the time, killed Coral himself. Yeah, speaking of, uh, I know we plug this podcast a lot, but uh, Last Podcast on the Left has a, I believe, four-part series on Dean Coral and uh, not only Elmer Wayne Henley, but the rest of his stable of, uh, you know, hooligans. Yeah. And it's it's hard to listen to, but it is fascinating. Yeah, it's some, good, it's some good blood-soaked true crime stuff, yeah. Hooper was really struck by the matter-of-fact way in which Henley viewed his crimes. His statements to the media were all like, look, I did this, I was wrong, I'll face the punishment. And the way that Henley could seemingly just so passively accept the horrible things he did really stuck with Hooper. And his third big influence, and there's some overlap here, um, the changes in news coverage in the wake of Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam traumatized the nation with horrors of real life in a fairly unprecedented way, the way the news covered it. And Hooper saw a lasting effect in the media with how the news would kind of just rattle off hideous events in the world in the early 70s without really any emotion or sentiment attached to it. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. In, in particular, he mentioned like he listed the news radio from San Antonio and they would just like rattle off one thing after another, never even commenting on it. 
So between that, so and- as as little as little credit as I like to give J.K. Rowling, that bit in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where they're just walking along and listening to the radio with all the you know listing all the names of the people who've been killed. Yeah, that is an homage <laughs> to Vietnam. Yeah, and that is very much what it was like. So between that and Elmer Wayne Henley, Hooper really stuck to this idea that awful things just kind of happen all the time, and you don't really even need to reflect on the impact of it or feel anything about it. That's just what the world is. A quote from him is that it became obvious to him in that time that man is the real monster. That attitude is... One of many reasons I love Toby Hooper. (laughs) That attitude is really prevalent in the film. For this family of characters out in BFE, Texas, these horrors are just what their life is. Um, like, so back that semester that, that the three of us were all hanging out over with, uh, Cody and his roommate, Tom at their apartment, we mostly watched just like dog shit movies. We, I do remember we did watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre once for fun. I think I insisted on it. Oh yeah. And, um, the, the joke that I, well, you, you and I, I think had to gang up on Tom yeah. to get, yeah. he, cause he Tom's did, not a big horror guy. He didn't want to watch something actually good. We did have fun with it. The joke that I made that I remember Tom liking a lot was like, you know, re- referring to like the weird uncle dad character, like, you know, the, at the end of the day, it's really just a story about a single dad trying to hold a family together. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and that was, and that was my joke, but that's almost kind of the point. Like it's, these are some extremely fucked up people who live their day to day life this way. There's nothing supernatural and there's no big reflection at any point on how bizarre it is. These kids just walk into all this and it just happens. And that's the end of it. Yeah. Wrong place, wrong time, and sometimes that's all it takes to take you from real life to hell. Yeah, yeah that's a big Tobe Hooper theme. That was rather novel at the time and was hugely influential. And, and as I mentioned, just how real it all felt. Like, if you take a couple wrong turns, you could see something like this. The movie's realistic feel also had to do with the fact that the, the cast are mostly students and random local actors that nobody had seen before. This is like the version of, of Manos, The Hands of Fate, where the director actually knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. The antagonists are this creepy, butt-ugly hick family out in rural Texas. While casting the rest of the family with creepy, butt-ugly hicks was probably not too difficult, the tougher challenge was casting the role of the, the scariest villain of the family. The hulking, childish, impulsive, Ed Gein-inspired killing machine, Leatherface. Leatherface, yeah, my boy. Cooper was given a gift when our guy Gunnar Hansen auditions for this role. Which again, Hansen, he was a novice actor outside of the local theater scene. Um, and the audience will have never seen him before. He had the perfect size and build for the part. But he was also smart and thoughtful enough to perfectly grasp the nuances of the Leatherface role. And yes, I do realize how preposterous of a sentence that is, but, but I'm going somewhere <laughs> with this. You're talking to the two of us, so I at least appreciate the nuances as far as that goes. Oh, yeah. Gunner gets the part, and he interprets this Leatherface character as someone with an intellectual disability. And here's where we get the point that Gunner being so smart made this performance what it was. To prepare for the role, Gunner visited a school for children with special needs and observed ways the students moved and spoke. Very lax security at this school for special needs, I would think. This this big yeah. Icelandic guy is just walking around watching the children. Like, well, we kind of got a lot to do. <laughs> um, yeah. They're like, look, the kids can just like play on him, pretend he's a jungle gym. We yeah. don't care today. <laughs> so in the movie, all of Leatherface's vocal tics and mannerisms, um, they were the product of this prep work that Gunner took it upon himself to do. 
that's part of the bigger picture of what made the film such a hit. It was a perfect storm of like this low-budget, gritty indie movie, but all these small technical aspects were perfectly executed. Another example would be the use of light. Um, it wasn't filmed on sets. This was the real central Texas countryside, real shitty old houses. And most of it's filmed in the daylight, partially, I assume, for budget reasons, but it really adds to the theme that this is just what happens out in the open in some places. Um, it also adds to the motif of rotten decay that permeates the entire film. Is You watch yeah. the movie, and it's like you can smell it. You know, it, it wouldn't work if it was all shot in the dark. Um, Rob Zombie, who was clearly heavily influenced by this movie, even before he did his own versions of it, he made the quote that, it's be beautifully shot. It's this really rough, handheld look. Usually movies look like movies. This just looked like you were there. Which I think there's there's definitely something to that. Yeah. Now, some of the realistic feel of the movie was the masterfully artful way it was shot. But, some of it was because the horrors were real. Not for the audience, but for the people making it. See, the cast, mostly Gunnar Hansen, They've done a number of interviews about the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And what we've learned is that filming this movie was one of the most miserable, disgusting, fucked up experiences of any movie in history. So without much of a budget, and, and to get to Cody's point, I, I think it was 60000 back then. In today's dollars, 800000 So less than a million, which is a very small amount to make a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So with a limited budget and limited time to work with, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was filmed over the course of five weeks in the sweltering summer heat and humidity of central Texas. Ooh. Again, most of the movie was shot in the daytime, and most days the temperature was at least 100 degrees. Part of the set design was that this house was littered with rotting animal carcasses and festering cheese. That was all real. Those were not props. And so they just sat out in the open in the heat for weeks on end. To make matters worse, part of having a low budget is not having extensive costumery. <clears throat> and the movie's plot takes place over the course of a day or two. The characters do not change clothes. So without the budget to buy a bunch of sets of the same clothes, and <clears throat> with the long filming days giving little time to go to the dry cleaners, the actors were mostly wearing the same sweaty clothes every single day. <clears throat> yeah. It was... And those of you who have never seen Texas Chainsaw... The amount of dead animal bones you think it is, magnify that by 10 mm -hmm. by the end of this movie. Like, there is literally a part where Leatherface opens the door and animal bones spill out onto the ground because there's no more room in the house. Like, a lot of carcasses. It turns into accidental method acting for everybody. Like, I, I mentioned earlier, like, you watch the movie, it's almost like you can smell it. Where they go into the room that has all the, like, chicken feathers and bones and carcasses in it. That's one that really, really got me for whatever reason. <clears throat> so this is all to say, the set and the people in it smelled like shit the entire time. According to Hansen, actors would frequently have to take short breaks to step outside to get fresh air and or vomit. Hansen had the additional problem that he had to wear the leather face mask constantly. Oh, God. <clears throat> he said that it, it actually wasn't hard to breathe in it, but it was so hot that his face would drench in sweat and he couldn't wipe it off. So he was dealing with that the whole time. Between the mask and the stench, there was a lot of distance between Gunner and his co-stars. And he's this huge guy terrorizing and murdering them all on camera. 
It would have been ideal for him to build a relationship with them as people, but it just was hardly plausible. So now all these people are becoming frightened of each other on top of everything else. Hooper himself didn't help things. He very much considered himself of the Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick school, where terrifying your own actors coaxes more believable performances out of them. Yeah, <laughs> Kubrick is the, like, I think, ultimate example of this. Yes, like, yeah. The anyone example. who wonders why Shelley Duvall is the way she is now, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. Yep. That guy. Poor Marilyn Burns, who starred as the protagonist Sally, the one who lives to the end, she got it the worst of anyone on set for multiple reasons. If you remember the scene where Sally is first trapped in the house and the creepy guys are just beating the piss out of her, that was not faked. The actors weren't comfortable really hitting her at first, but Hooper needed the shot and so he egged them on, and they beat her so bad she passed out after the scene ended. Jesus. <clears throat> yeah, not good. And that wouldn't even be, be Marilyn's worst experience, but more on that later. So another one of the actors, um, Paul Pertain, he was the one who played Sally's brother, Franklin. Franklin's character was, and I, I imagine this is not an acceptable term to use now, but in those days, the term they, they described him was, was an invalid. He was wheelchair bound and he clearly had a mild intellectual disability. So Paul Pertain is one of my favorite types of actor. A small-time local actor who, for some reason, method acts like he's goddamn Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Which would be one thing. But rather than taking Gunner's approach of grasping the nuances and mannerisms of people with learning disabilities, Paul's interpretation was just to be as loud and annoying as possible. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, this guy <clears throat> is, like... <laughs> one of the most uncomfortable characters ever committed to film. You don't yeah. ever feel at ease watching this guy. None of his co-stars knew him before this. So they just thought he was actually like that. Like apparently later at cast parties, he'd show up and talk to him like normal, like, holy shit. You're like, that, that wasn't real. <laughs> you're normal. <laughs> and a, a similar thing would happen years later. Uh, Leo DiCaprio as a young man uh, or as a kid in his first acting role, what's eating Gilbert grape. Uh, apparently much the same way like people who worked with him after the movie was shot were shocked to find out that's not what it was really like so the set reeks it's over 100 degrees and humid actors can't change their clothes they're in the middle of nowhere filming an incredibly violent movie the director is torturing them constantly and this guy paul pertain won't shut his fucking pie hole it is a miserable experience and it only got worse the further they got the film was mostly shot chronologically so, so the uh, degeneration we see within the film is also occurring on the set. The absolute pinnacle of this was the legendary dinner scene. A true iconic moment in the horror movie genre. <laughs> a, a screenshot of which also happens to be my Twitter header this month. <clears throat> so Sally's been taken captive in the house. The creepy uncle dad guy came home and managed to keep Leatherface and his rat face brother from killing her. Although he did help them beat the shit out of her. And also does the, the, this is the other part that Tom enjoyed. Was he a, you damn fools. That, act, <laughs> that was actually probably my favorite actor of the whole thing. Wherever they found this guy was. <clears throat> she, Sally wakes up to find herself tied to a chair and gagged at the dinner table with Leatherface, his weird uncle dad guy, the ratty brother, and their comatose scaly skinned grandpa. The scene itself. Yeah, the grandpa <clears throat> who you are supposed to intuit early into the scene is dead. 
but then turns out no he's actually alive he's just that like decrepit fun fact the guy who who portrayed grandpa in that scene it was 18 years old at the time part of why they put the most makeup you've ever seen on a movie character on this guy it was the most obvious mask i've yeah. ever seen in my life yeah <laughs> The scene itself, but, you know, of course, I, I think it's supposed to look not quite natural. It's almost kind of an Uncanny Valley thing. Um, the scene itself is only five minutes long or so. But the filming of this scene lasted for 16 straight hours with no breaks. Oh, <laughs> damn. It's sweltering hot. There's rotting food everywhere. These actors straight up suffered getting this scene right. It pays off on screen. Just like the rest of the movie, the misery is palpable. All those little shots where they zoom in on Sally's distressed bloodshot eyes, that's completely real. There's no movie magic there. Now, they did attempt some movie magic for the crescendo of the scene, where Leatherface slices Sally's finger to allow the half-dead grandpa to suck the blood out. They had this prop knife containing a tube of fake blood that was supposed to squirt out. But of course, the fake knife malfunctions. So Gunnar Hansen is trying to get it to shoot out the blood, and it just won't. I don't know if it was the humidity or what the fuck the problem was. <clears throat> so they've been at this for so long, and it's gotten so miserable. Gunnar just finally says, fuck this. He grabs a real knife and just actually slices Marilyn Burns' finger. Jesus. So in that scene, when the grandpa is sucking Marilyn Burns' actual blood out of... Like, that's out of an actual wound. That's real blood. Jim Dugan, the guy that who... That is... Yeah. Jim Dugan, the guy who played the grandpa, he didn't even know it. He didn't see that happen. Uh, he didn't know until years later when they told him and described uh, that knowledge as erotic. So he was the actual scariest person involved in all of this. I think he didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it could have gotten very weird. I don't know how the situation can get any more weird. Let's, uh, let's let grandpa know it's real blood. So the way that the scene ends is that uh, the weird dad uncle guy has a strange monologue about he how he just doesn't take no pleasure in killing, um, which very much was borrowed from Elmer Wayne Henley. I think that character is is quite clearly based off of him. So they decide to quote let Grandpa have this one, and so the comatose old man tries limply to beat Sally with a hammer with the Ratty brothers' help, but Sally escapes. The day of filming ends there finally. And they come back to film the final, even more iconic scene where Leatherface chases Sally out of the house and into the road nearby where he massacres a poor random trucker, but Sally escapes in the bed of a passing pickup. That scene was the final day of filming. The makeup artist for the movie was a woman with the delightfully Texan name of Dottie Pearl. Oh, it's so Texan. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is as Texas as Texas gets. To celebrate, she brought brownies for the whole cast. And big ol' Gunnar Hansen's like, I love brownies, and he eats a bunch. But the problem was, this was the 70s after all, and these were, oh, as boy. they say, special brownies. Oh, no. Gunnar did not know this, and he had never tried marijuana before. <laughs> so within an hour or so, he's completely out of his skull. This was yeah, I bet. This was right before he had to film a scene where he chases Marilyn Burns and cuts down a door with a chainsaw. Which, to be clear, there was no prop chainsaw. Th that was 100% real and still had the teeth on it. Marilyn Burns generally trusted Gunner, <laughs> but between the finger-slicing incident and now this, she's shitting bricks. 
it took dozens of takes before he finally did it right. He was just like dizzy as fuck. So there's a fun little bit of trivia for you. In that last sequence, when Leatherface slices through the door with a chainsaw, the actor portraying him is on another universe on edibles. <laughs> that was Which just makes the whole thing better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That was the final shot they filmed, and after that, it was a wrap. Hooper sent the film off for production. Um, so you notice there isn't a ton of actual gore in the film. For one, I imagine there might be buzzet reasons there again. Um, two, it kind of followed the theme that the worst horrors were to be implied. And three, Tobe Hooper, and, and this is an insane fact, he was actually hoping that the MPAA would give it a PG rating. He actually thought he <laughs> might pull that off. I think not. What? Yeah, the MPAA took one look at it and was like, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> R, big fat R, yep. <laughs> it, it's true. There's not a ton of blood and guts, but the movie is incredibly violent and sadistic. Like, they, they watched this, um, they saw, I imagine, probably the scene where Leatherface just casually picks the girl up and hangs her from a meat hook while she's still alive. And they're like, no, fuck you, you're getting an X. They were yeah. They were actually able to talk them into an R, but but he could not have been more off the mark with this assessment. <laughs> England and Australia outright banned the movie at first, and two Canadian theaters were strong-armed by cops into withdrawing the movie. So the Commonwealth very much was not a fan of this film. Yeah. Audiences were very polarized. It was an instant cult hit among horror buffs, but there were also reports of some audiences walking out of theaters in disgust. Critics were also mixed. Um, many praised how well executed it was, all things considered. Roger Ebert was one of the people with that opinion. Others did not appreciate it, using words such as extreme, unimaginative, and despicable. People have said uh, similar things about this show. There it is. Yep. Obviously, um, in the time since, it's become regarded, rightfully, as one of the greatest and most important horror movies ever made. It launched a very long movie career for Tobe Hooper, Unfortunately, the same can't be said about our guy Gunnar Hansen. I saw an interviewer ask him if the movie got him a lot of roles. He's like, "No, they wouldn't touch me after that." Like, have no, you seen no. have you seen the movie? Can you really blame him? <clears throat> Gunnar became much more interested in writing and poetry after this. That is until years later, in 1988, when he'd returned to acting in the spoof horror movie Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Which my, oh, yeah. my understanding my understanding is that it was like a proto version of the scary movie franchise. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That... He'd spend the rest of his life writing and teaching while also taking small roles in shitty horror movies, one of which was the two thousand nine Icelandic film Reykjavik Whale Watching Massacre, which I very much would like to see. <laughs> Yeah, if anyone has a uh, like an MP4, uh, here's a mailbox at gmail.com. <laughs> so this all culminated in 2013 with his final acting role, which would also serve as his return to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, as he played a member of the Sawyer family in Texas Chainsaw 3D. Hansen would sadly pass away just two years later at age 68 of pancreatic cancer. Hansen is mainly remembered as a guy who inflicted carnage and mayhem on screen. And my take on his legacy is that we should remember that he was a very smart, thoughtful, talented guy. But we should also remember him inflicting carnage and mayhem on screen because he was quite good at it. So credit where credit's <laughs> yep. due. 
So that's the story of Gunnar Hansen and the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And my big question for the two of you, um, put yourself in their shoes. You're invited to have dinner with the creepy family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre at their place. What are you bringing to dinner? So uh, I'm going to go back to our roots a little bit here, Alex. And uh, I feel like the Sawyers would appreciate some uh, homestyle squirrel and noodles. Oh, so sure. That's what I'm bringing. Yep. Good potluck. Good potluck ad. Yeah. I, I feel like in the spirit of this, whatever I bring to the table, I'm going to hate afterwards. So I don't want to bring anything that I like too much. And I feel like due to like the lengthy, like it's 16 hour shooting, it's going to, it's going to ruin immediately. So I feel like it, I'm going to have to bring something that like equally upsets everyone else. So, uh, inspired by one of my dad's favorite late night snacks, I'm bringing Vienna sausage and mayonnaise sandwiches to the table. Hell yeah. They might like that. You'd, you'd be the hit of the <clears throat> ball. Yeah. Oh, honestly, um, great think, midnight snack. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like at that table, there's not much that's going to be turned down. Yeah. Because um, it's either this or, like, person. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like you're, you're, you're pretty safe there. I'm thinking I'm going to bring a, a, a bottle of some nice Chianti. Because, you know, there there's some precedent in the zeitgeist for cannibals liking such things. Yeah. Um, although I would worry a little bit about offending them with this. Um, also, I'm bringing a fucking shotgun and maybe a torch, just yeah. you know, oh. in case I in case I need to, uh, an excuse to exit this thing. Uh, you're you're uh, you're Robert Downey Jr. <clears throat> in Tropic Thunder. What kind of farmer are you? I'm a lead farmer, motherfucker, and then you just shoot everybody. <laughs> at the table. And thank God for that. All right, well, that's two topics down, and for topic number three, Cody, who's your guy this week? I got another spooky tale for you. And there's a common theme that's been running through these last few episodes. Uh, not just involving general spookiness, but, uh, well, you'll you'll figure it out here in a second. We're going to revisit this theme yet again. This, to me, is one of the scarier stories we've covered on the show. Because this illustrates how just one little procedural error in judgment can lead to a really fucked up situation. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about uh, the Kobe cannibal Issei Sagawa, the beneficiary of one of the most infamous technicalities in Japanese legal history, or indeed world legal history. So, <clears throat> without get to or without delaying us any further, uh, Issei Sagawa was born in Kobe, in Japan, to a very wealthy family. Um, his father was the former president of a large uh, water company, water treatment company. Uh, and his grandfather had been an editor for one of the biggest newspapers in Japan. Think like Chicago Trib, New York Times, like that big. Damn. That's big money. Yeah. This guy is from money money. <laughs> so. Issei Sagawa was born very prematurely and as such was always physically very small and frail with an introverted personality. Which was a real bummer because the thing about young Issei was he was also, how do I say this? A cannibal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's uh, as we've seen a couple times, that's uh, uh, there's a real burden <laughs> to have to have to live as a cannibal uh society doesn't have a lot of places for you 
Alex uh, hate to do this again, but table that thought. I suspect um, as much, yep. I don't like Despite... that we're tabling Alex for the cannibal, honestly. Oh, yeah, we'll get wait. there, too. No, um, no, just... no, wait a minute! <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute! Now, most of the cannibals we've discussed on this show, and there's a phrase I never thought I would have to say, um, most of the cannibals we've covered have suffered severe physical and emotional abuse, like most who develop this paraphilia. Or like, Alfred, really... or like Alfred Packer, he's just fucking hungry. <laughs> That's true. Uh, neither of these was the case with Issei, though. He came hmm. from a, again, wealthy, comfortable family, uh, no shortage of food, and uh, from all accounts, there was no uh, serious abuse. But later on, he would say he uh, reported strong cannibalistic urges as early as the first grade. He apparently was one of these people who's just born to want to eat people. Like, <laughs> I don't know that there's much you can do about it. That, that's the rare gene you don't want to pass down to your kids. Yeah. He managed to keep these impulses under wraps, and no, I don't mean tortillas, uh, until his oh. college years. Imagine, Sorry. imagine like an eight-year-old coming up to you and going, hey, can I eat your leg? Hey, now, that's more health conscious. <laughs> no extra calories in there. Yeah. Yeah, not as many empty carbs. Um, during his time uh, studying in Tokyo as a college student uh, at age 24, he followed a woman home, then broke into her apartment while she was sleeping and attempted to slice off, well, slice off part of her butt. Okay. Sort of a, a Hannibal Lecter carryout, if you will. Mm-hmm. This, now, is a, this, this is the, woman... the, this like food truck cannibalism. Just kind yeah. of grab it and go. So this woman, of course, woke up before he got a chance to slice anything at all. And because of his uh, small, frail nature, overpowered Sagawa, and he was arrested. I don't know how he thought this was going to go exactly. Like, that lady was just going to wake up the next morning and be like, Uh, what the? <laughs> One of my ass cheeks is missing. <laughs> that's, I gotta, that's, I gotta that, go to the doctor, get this looked at. Peculiar. I need some... Man. This mouse problem's really getting out of control. I should not have gone to the casino last night. I lost my ass at the poker table. <laughs> We're having fun, folks. Well, this you was be, almost assaulted. But, uh, yeah, I was going to say this lady was uh, not having fun. No, he was arrested, not. but of course, as he had done nothing cannibalistic yet, they didn't really know that's what he was after. And he, of course, did not disclose this to his arresting officers that like, hey, I'm not here to do anything. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to hurt this lady. I just want to eat part of her ass. He's a, he's yeah, obsessed those... with eating ass. What is he, a Zoomer? <laughs> yeah, look, I, <clears throat> let's move on. I'm not one of those uh, those creepy perverts. I just wanted to cut off part of her ass cheek and grill it. <laughs> I, just wanted, yeah. I just wanted to eat a little bit of this lady. So what he was actually charged with was attempted rape, which close enough, I guess. Yeah, wh whatever. Uh, that that yeah. that'll do it. And and, and, a, and a touch of breaking and entering, but yeah, no, just minor crime. However, in a thing that we do here in the U.S. all the time, but they're allowed to do a little more openly in Japan, apparently, uh, his father paid the victim a settlement, and the charges were dropped. All right. Yeah, that'll do so, it. So, at age twenty-seven. 
Sagawa decided he wanted to get his PhD in literature, which he had studied during his time in college. So he moved to Paris, France, and studied at the Sorbonne. Oh, well, yeah. This you entire know, hi highly educated, highly educated uh, um, uh, literature and English majors—they're uh, never repressed in any ways. So <laughs> no. things are starting finally starting to look up for your boy Issei. <laughs> So this entire time, he was building up the courage to give cannibalism another shot. He later would be uh, quoted as saying, I brought a prostitute back to my room almost every night. And every time I was planning to shoot them and then eat them, I just never quite could get up the courage. Is that something you practice in the mirror? Yeah. I, I'm getting taxi driver vibes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly. I'm just imagining him going... Never... <laughs> he just goes up to a prostitute... Hey, can I eat you? Out? Yeah, sure, whatever. Like, hey, uh, you know, just notice you across the room, and um, you know, <laughs> just just uh, you caught my eye. I thought you're attractive, and um, uh, I'd love to feast upon your flesh. Shit. <laughs> so, at age 32, toward the end of his career as an academic, he invited a young woman named uh, Renee Hartbelt, who was a Dutch classmate over to his apartment under the pretense of translating some poetry. If you know what I mean. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, that's anyway, that's code in, in, in the academic world for some major league boning. Yeah. <laughs> so surely she at least thought she was going to, you know, that that was going to happen, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, don't want to blame her for anything because her night got a lot worse here shortly. Um, he selected Renee because she was tall and beautiful. She stood uh, 5'10". And he wanted to, quote-unquote, absorb her energy. Hmm. This was a big thing with him. Hmm. As he Did felt... He considered himself to be small, weak, and ugly. And to be fair, all of these things were true. Yeah. <laughs> Sagawa stood just 4'9", and had a face like a fucking rodent. This guy was he... shorter than Giuseppe? Holy He's fuck. Nine. <laughs> He's not Cell from Dragon Ball. He doesn't absorb their powers when he eats them. He just stays the same short little weird fuck. He's Giuseppe, but Asian. Um, yeah, what a little twerp. Or prone to be even a little slightly smaller. Um, yeah, so uh, once Renee sat down at a desk, he pulled out a rifle and shot her in the back of the head. Oh, um, what he did next was to pass out because, again, this guy's a fucking nerd. I imagine just the, so the just flash of any gun knocks him on his head, and he just like falls over. <laughs> that what, could be. He is a Keebler elf. <clears throat> of a person. That that's a tough place to be in—a squeamish cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> so, eventually, nobody heard this shot, and eventually he came to, found Renee there dead as he had anticipated, and decided he was going to practice a little necrophilia. Um, As he anticipated, he blew her head off. Yeah, he had to know she was going to die. Like, <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know what the passing out was about. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Imagine coming to, and like, in like that first like couple seconds, like you're delirious. You're like, oh no, someone killed us. Oh, that was me, right? Yeah, no, I still have a plan, don't I? <laughs> it's like the American oh, Dad bit where he... trouble than I thought. The American Dad bit where, where Roger, like, from 20 feet elbow dropped a guy and just exploded his head. And then the stand was like... <laughs> So how's he doing? Is he is he going to be okay? No. <laughs> oh. So. He shoots Renee. He comes to. 
does the whole necrophilia thing. Yeah. Won't get into any more detail on that because it's not constructive and also it's extremely gross. Yeah, he does. Um, he does the he necrophilia. Does... We all know. Yeah. Yeah. Not unlike the monster match, but uh, a little less whimsical. Uh, he then oh. set to work on the task that he had in initially brought Renee over for, which was cannibalism. He ate various parts of her body. He was a little choosy on what he wanted to eat exactly. Um, he also photographed it intermittently as it was consumed. Again, not sure why, but, you know, this psychology is not <clears throat> supposed to make sense to most of us. Yeah, um, we, we don't need to look look too deep for the logic here we're 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 past that i think yeah because if you find it then what do you got right. <laughs> like, <clears throat> so when he was finished with the parts of her he wanted to eat he attempted to dump the rest of the body in a nearby river using two suitcases However, he was not very good at this either and was caught in the act and arrested by the French police. Well, no, the suitcase <laughs> is bigger than him. <laughs> I'm also, it's its like you're, you're packing, but like you're running late. So there's like a sleeve hanging out of it, but it's a leg. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, no. Like, that's basically <laughs> what happened here. So, yeah, they just said the French police caught him red handed. I don't know what that entailed exactly. I'm hoping it was just shaking out a body full of, or a suitcase full of human body parts into the river, and he, he was, just doesn't know they're there. And they're like, he, he I don't know a, what you're doing exactly, but it can't be legal. It just can't be. He paid good money for those suitcases, so he was just emptying out the suitcases. He wanted to keep them. Well, um, his family paid good money for lots of things, including a lawyer. And after two years... This lawyer got him declared insane and unfit for trial, and he was sentenced to indefinite confinement to a mental institution, as many are. Right. Because I'll, I'll say, like, kind of the common convention of, like, pleading insanity, there's a lot of misconception about that, because um, the reason why it's done so rarely is you don't go home. <laughs> you, you, are, yeah. you are confined forever, it just so happens to be that you are in a hospital rather than in a prison, um, which is <laughs> if that's what. Yeah, I, I know. I know there's more to this, but I'm just saying generally speaking. Yeah. For everyone other than say, this guy. Don't, don't make me say it for a third time this episode. Yeah. Um, so while he was in this mental institution, he was visited by uh, a famous Japanese author named Inuhiku Yamota who wrote his account of Sagawa's crimes in a book that became very popular. I don't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but uh, it was a big hit on with all the true crime folks. Sagawa then became something of a celebrity. And this probably contributed to the French government's decision that, no, we don't want writers and <clears throat> pleasure seekers and fans and fucking weirdos coming to visit this guy in our mental institution. We're going to deport you to Japan. <sighs> Sexy people get all the lucky breaks. Yeah. So here's why this was really stupid. Because he had been declared legally insane by French authorities the charges were automatically dropped. That's how it works over there and very similar to how it works here. 
Oh, well, I'm sure they have some kind of easy mechanism in place to where he'll he'll still be confined in a mental hospital, right? Yeah, that has to <laughs> no, be. right? They don't, is the thing. <laughs> so, since the charges had been dropped, there, were, there was no legal charge against this man. Yeah, they had no authority to hold him, and I guess. And the crimes... The crimes had taken place, well, the French did, but the crimes had taken place in France, and the Japanese legal system had not declared him insane, nor had they convicted him of anything, which would have been a moot point if the French had actually convicted him, but no, he was declared insane and the charges were dropped. So... If he had been convicted, the French would have just either kept him in an actual prison over there, or the Japanese could have just done the whole traditional extradition thing and brought him to one of their prisons. But as he was in a mental institution and declared insane, not actually convicted of a crime, once he crossed the boil into Japanese soil, he was a free man. The Japanese government had no legal right to detain him. So he just goes. Crazy like a fox. So now you... A, a tiny, now tiny you've fox. Got an, yeah. Literal, actual size fox. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> to scale, fox. So now you've got an acknowledged murderer, cannibal, and necrophile just walking around. Just hanging out. Oh, you love to see it. So this made him, of course, something of a morbid curiosity to the Japanese. Um... You know, there. it's not often you get a somebody who has for sure been proven to have done these things and still have full access to them as a functioning member of society. It's just yeah. very infrequent that that happens. He was frequently invited to be a guest commentator in Japanese media. He wrote books about his murder. Not one book, but multiple books. Um, and he even wrote restaurant reviews in a national magazine. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's, yeah. That was that's rub, an, rubbing it in a little much. That's an onion bit. Like, confirmed yeah. cannibal thinks the ribeye is m mediocre. Yeah. You thought Alex's guy uh, a little <laughs> while back was going to be the cutest people got with cannibalism. No, no, no. He was also nearly accepted as a teacher by a French language school in Japan as the headmaster was impressed by the courage he showed in using his real name. Now, okay. However, as far as him being hired yeah. as a teacher. Actually, I, I'm not even going to go down that road. That does suck. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna try yeah. and try and find some kind of justification for that, but but I, I got none. He, he's highly educated, but also eight people, I, I guess person, but still wanted to eat multiple people. Yeah, would have eaten multiple people had the opportunity arisen. So, um, the headmaster was gonna hire him, but the employees were like, "No, <laughs> we are not working here if you hire a cannibal." <laughs> I'm sure as fuck not working in the lunchroom. Yeah, so the, the, the workplace retreats it, are going to be very awkward. Yeah. Trust falls are are going to be a lot more dicey. Yeah. Um. So if you hire him, we're all going to quit. So that fell through. 
Um, Power of organization he, in the workplace, just, folks. Yeah. He's uh, he's been on welfare, basically, since he got out. But in 2011, Sagawa was... This is one of my favorite quotes. He was quoted as saying that trying to make a living out there in the world with being known as a cannibal and a, and a necrophile was a terrible punishment. Okay. Yeah, yeah I... I uh... You know what's a terrible punishment? Prison. Yeah, prison. <laughs> if you'd pulled this shit in Texas, they would have fried your ass just for being Japanese. That is true. Count your blessings, bro. You can go get a drink at a bar. Like, you can go to the gas station and buy a fucking Snickers. Shut up. You're a cannibal. This is so much better than what most of you get. Uh, in 2013, he suffered a cerebral infarction, um, which resulted in several ischemic strokes and largely retired from the public eye. He has a lot of trouble getting around now, a lot of health problems, stuff like that. But he's still alive and he is still free. Fascinating. As far as we know, has never killed, cannibalized or necrophiliaized anything or anybody since then. Still, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he at least seemingly learned that he's not good enough at being a cannibal to continue <laughs> attempting to be a cannibal. You're not a cat. You don't you're, you're not getting away with that twice, I don't think. Yeah, right. So Issei Sagawa, we saw him later on after uh, becoming a free man, kind of trading off his name a little bit to make his living. So I wanted to, for my big question, uh, put you two in his shoes. If you had committed some kind of horrendous crime that everyone knew about, had made the papers, but you got off on a technicality not unlike this, you got to make a living trading off your name from here on out. What are you doing? So, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. One of my other defense lawyer nerd things here. Something I learned from another defense attorney, um, actually when I was still in school, so very early in my career, is um, it's kind of a misnomer to say, you know, as a pejorative that someone got off on a technicality. Like, no, the technicality is the law. And if the law is in place, then that is what lets someone free. Now, that said, I get a lot less joy in pointing that out in this story than pretty much any other story. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I won't be as obnoxious about that. But um, I'm going to go specifically in the context of if I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm in Issei's shoes. And uh, if, if uh, the crime I've committed is, is, is eating somebody. I mean, I'm sorry, as bad as it is, I'm starting a burger stand. Yeah. And, and, and my oh, yeah. and my approach is going to be, I am definitely not going to put any human flesh into the food. Like, I'll pass all the safety inspections, and I'm going to say that there's no human flesh in the food. But I am going to be, like, kind of cagey about it, just yeah. to drum up enough curiosity that people will, will... I think they'll be so curious, they'll come in and want to try it. Like the first episode of Bob's Burgers, basically. That's what I was thinking. Right. So... For yet another widest kids you know reference, it's not kittens, it's chicken. Wink. <laughs> People say like, "Oh, well, I mean, you pass all the health inspections. Like, surely there's no way around that. Like, yeah, there's definitely no way around the law, right? Yeah, nobody gets away with something like that, huh? Enjoy your burger." Uh -huh. For me, I I envisioned a crime that I think would be cute and kind of like. I mean, at the end of the day, like, we have to commit a horrible crime. 
and inspired by the most recent Monday Night Football game of the Chargers and the Broncos, um, I'm going to push somebody into the Grand Canyon, but I'm not going to physically do it. The technicality is I pushed somebody else into the guy who was pushed into the Grand Canyon. So technically, <laughs> I didn't do it. No flag on the play. I'm going to kick a field goal pretty soon. But uh, my life after the fact is pretty much going to be ruined, but I think I'm going to be a local celebrity at the Grand Canyon, so I'm going to be a uh, tour guide there afterwards. <laughs> Bet nobody gets too close to the edge. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of those things, like, my, my, my hook is going to be, like, yeah, the views to die for. Like, I'm, uh, I'm going to kind of, like, wink and a nudge, like, that it might push people, but uh, I'm probably not going to get away with it twice. Hey, don't get too close to the edge. Don't cross that velvet rope or I might have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That guy next to you is looking pretty hefty and off balance. <laughs> I might just, you know. So, yeah, for me, um, I'm going to, again, um, assume that I am Issei Sagawa and uh, that my crime is uh, eating people. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go the Kobayashi route and become a uh, competitive eater. Oh, no. And... You know, my whole thing is going to be like, I ate most of a person. Like, the fuck these right. 40 hot dogs going to do? Right. And, and then everyone's going to be, everyone's going to be too off kilter sitting next to me to have much of an appetite. So I'm just going to walk home to every victory. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the intimidation, I imagine, is a big part of that world. Like, oh, yeah. oh I'm going to look, I'm going to look at Joey Chestnut to my left and start smacking my lips for sure. You're, you're just, you walk up to the table and you're like, wow, all these hot dogs kind of look like fingers. Reminds me of something, and then you're just looking in the eyes. Sweet, I'm just gonna walk fingers. up before they bring the hot dogs out and be like, "Oh, look, is this what I gotta eat? Yeah, I think <laughs> I can do well." Oh, it's hot dogs today. Okay, sorry guys. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we certainly learned a lot this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank what you. Did we learn. <laughs> we learned. I don't fucking know. <laughs> I got no idea. I got nothing for this one. Much to Humanity think about. Humanity sucks. How yeah. about that? <laughs> much much to think about. Um, well, thank you all for being here. Um, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. And uh, to wrap this thing up, let's start by doing what we always do. Let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, first and foremost, uh, you can find me here on Here's a Guy every week on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can find me uh, as often as we possibly can over on a little Twitch channel that the three of us and... Uh, our friend Pookie are working on called Here's an Adventure. Are we playing this weekend, guys? I th I believe so. Yes. Yeah, I no. think so. So, find us over there this weekend and uh, roughly every other week or so. You can also find me over on Twitter as I fight through my uh, acid reflux. I am at Son of Gravy for twenty sixty nine. Um. Yeah, those three places for the most part. And, of course, I am one of the three folks you will reach if you shoot us something at uh, here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Uh, but importantly, you won't have to open it. Uh, Alex will, so send weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of them are, are a lot of them are very violent towards you, so um, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, Jack, John, how, Jack, Jack John, how about you? Where can the people find you? I'll, uh, I'll reiterate what Cody said about Here's an Adventure. You can also find me on my personal Twitch channel, Jack John Plays Games. And go check me out on YouTube at Jack John Plays Games as well. Uh, I launched a teaser trailer for my new project, uh, Legendary The Cabbage Henry Story. 
where which I Alex and I will both probably be involved in at some point. We have not recorded our parts yet. Yeah, but uh, uh, we'll get there. Where I take a uh, legendary college football coach Cabbage Henry and do a ESPN thirty for thirty retrospective on his uh, his coaching abilities. Right on. All right. Well, for me, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin the number four P R E Z. Uh, podcast has an account as well. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. And as previously mentioned, we have a mailbox too. It's here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Uh, send us something and uh, a strong chance it winds up on the show, as you've heard in previous episodes. Um, and I'll also second what everyone said about here's an adventure. Uh, Twitch.tv slash here's an adventure. Check us out uh, likely late Sunday afternoon. That's when we typically do it. Um, so uh, check us out around that time. But uh, keep an eye on our socials um, to find out the specific deets. So thank you all for being here. And. Um, Let's go ahead and bring this thing home. Cody, do you have a tagline for us? I do. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Hope to have you again with us next week. And Cody, to take us home, hit us with that tagline, please. Stop eating people. Seriously. Stop fucking eating people. That could solve most of the problems we've had these last couple weeks. All right. If you seriously cannot find anything better to eat than people... Just check out your local Grubhub page. I promise there is something on there better than that. Good night, daddies.